0: pray. Father, singing with hearts full of joy because of what took place 2,000 years ago is a great gift that you have given your people. We thank you for this day that we are in a place where the word of God will be lifted up, where we will be fed from your holy scriptures, where we have the privilege of lifting our voice together to bring glory to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And as we open your word now, Father, as we encounter a story that is very familiar, there's still so much for us to see. So Holy Spirit, do that work. Draw us close. Open our eyes. Open our ears. Change our hearts. Clear our minds that we might be fed your word and leave this place transformed by your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the reading of God's word. The resurrection account that we're going to be looking at this morning comes from the gospel of Matthew. We've been in Matthew this holy week. The title of today's sermon is The King's Victory. We are living in reality of that victory. But I thought of another title along the way, and that is The King's Feet. And maybe you'll see why as we read this narrative. Matthew 28, one to 10. Now after the Sabbath toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I'm very grateful that the Lord has you with us today, whether in person or if you're worshiping with us online or even at another date because this is recorded. It is our great privilege and desire to always hold out the resurrected Lord to people. We want so much, everyone who walks through the doors of this church churches that we've planted, any church that's part of the true church, to know what it means to be right with the living God. 19 years ago, when I worshiped in this church for the first time, I remember being struck by the mission statement. Park City's Presbyterian Church exists to extend the transforming presence of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ in Dallas and beyond. It's why we sent our very first missionary to Russia over 30 years ago. It's why we've planted churches in Ukraine, in China, in Africa, South America, all over the globe. and still more work to be done. It's because we believe deeply in this resurrection hope. We believe deeply in this person, Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And we want those churches full of his people to be in places where horror takes place, places where there is no hope outside of this hope, which is Jesus. And it is our great privilege even this day to extend that good news to you. The story that we're looking at this morning involves women, women who are moving towards the tomb to take care of the body of their beloved friend, And Savior Jesus. As they go towards the tomb, I wonder what they were expecting. Think about it for a moment. As these women move, Mary and Mary, towards the tomb, we can learn what they're expecting by the conversations that they have had and by what they're carrying. They expect to see a closed tomb and they expect to see a dead body. Their conversation went something like this in one of the other gospels. They had a problem. We're women. We cannot move that stone. Who is going to move the stone for us so we can take care of his body? Their expectations? A closed tomb and a dead body. What were they not expecting? They were not expecting resurrection promises to be fulfilled. They were not expecting resurrection power to be on display. They were not expecting the resurrection person, Jesus, his very presence. They were not expecting what Jesus told them was going to happen. None of us followers were. The disciples weren't expecting Jesus to rise. Yet, even the angel reminds them he said he would rise. Multiple times in the gospel, Jesus said, they will mock me, spit on me, persecute me, falsely accuse me, kill me. And after three days, I will rise. Jesus said that. It's recorded in the gospels, but we can easily imagine that he said it many more times than that. But on this day, three days after his death, none of them are expecting Jesus to be alive. The women are carrying spices, ointment to care for the body. Their conversation is about how to move the stone. Today, as you got ready to come to Resurrection Sunday, to to this place of worship, what were you expecting? Were you expecting anything? Were you expecting beautiful music, a sermon you hope won't be too long, a wonderful lunch afterwards, coming to the 11 o'clock where the traffic won't be as bad? What were you expecting? If we could truly look into our hearts, Our conversations and what we're carrying into this place would say a lot about our expectations. What did you talk about out loud or internally on the way to church today? What have you carried into this place that like those spices and those herbs will be useless? You ever wondered If anyone, when they were gathering all of that to take care of his body said, do we really need to do this? He said he would rise. No one said that. Have you ever wondered what happened to all of those spices and the ointment? I wonder. It was useless. They were expecting a dead body. They were expecting a closed tomb. They were not expecting resurrection promises to be fulfilled. They were not expecting resurrection power to be on display. They were not expecting the resurrection presence of Jesus. They were not expecting victory. Now, what about you? They were told he would rise. It didn't, it didn't influence their expectations. If you're a believer in Jesus, what have you been told about Christ that's not influencing your expectations? What have you been told about the promises of Christ that really aren't influencing the way you enter into this sanctuary, or even the way in which you wake up each day when you've been promised new mercies? Just like them, though we've heard the word so often, we are not living in the power of his presence, his resurrection power. The women, and I love that the women are so prominent in these accounts. The women are the ones moving towards the tomb. They expect a closed tomb. They expect a dead body when they meet this angel. Now this really happens. So you need to imagine the scene. And that's all we can do is imagine. This angel comes to them. Verse three it says, His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. Think about how unsettling this is. In fact, they've already experienced an earthquake. That's unsettling. But now they see this angel like lightning, clothing white as snow, and they are experiencing fear. But they're not the only ones. Look at verse four. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. That's interesting. You know why the guards are there? Because the religious leaders who killed Jesus remembered he said he would rise. They didn't believe he could. They didn't believe he would. But they believed it was possible that the disciples who heard the same thing Jesus said might come and steal the body to make it look like he had risen. Now those guards, who probably were hoping the disciples would try to steal the body, It might be fun to beat on a few of Jesus' followers. They are terrified. They are experiencing paralytic fear. Verse four, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel speaks to the women why these guards are dropping like they're dead. Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. They didn't expect to hear that. He is not here. He has risen. They did not expect to hear that. As he said. That's a really important statement. As he said. He did what he said. He said he would rise and he's risen. He's not here. The angel then says, come, see the place where he lay, the place where they expected to see a closed tomb, the the place where they expected to see a dead body. And then the angel says, go quickly now and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So now what are they expecting? These women are leaving and they're bringing the greatest news that has ever been told that the one that they witnessed die is alive. And this is important. All the disciples scattered as Jesus said they would, except John at the foot of the cross. John is there and these women. And on that Friday, Good Friday, these women watched Jesus die. The worst possible death, an unjust death, a cruel death. These women were there and could hear the words that Jesus proclaimed, those seven final statements. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How long did it take him to speak these between each? We have no idea, but I promise it was longer than what we would do in a service just to say them. For the man was dying and the death was gonna be a death of suffocation. So in order to breathe, Jesus using the nails would have to pull himself up. So imagine that. These women are watching Jesus, including his mother and Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. And as he pulls himself up, struggling to get air in his breast, he looks at the woman whose breast gave him life and sustained his life. And he says to her, woman, behold your son. And he's speaking about John, not her blood son. He's laying the foundation of the church that will continue. It's powerful. Woman, behold your son. And then he looks at the man whose head at the Passover meal had rested on the breast of Christ, who heard probably the heartbeat of God. And he says, son, behold your mother. These women had seen that. These women had also seen that tomb closed after the body was put in. Now they have been told he is alive, he is risen as he said. And the angel says, go quickly, tell the disciples. They will see him in Galilee and they run. I imagine they left the spices anointment there. Those things were heavy. They run. What are they expecting? They're expecting to tell the disciples that Jesus is alive, that he is in Galilee. We will see him again. When suddenly, in another unsettling way, because this is the way God does it, Jesus appears. They expect to see him in Galilee, but they're going to see him on the road, the road to the disciples. And they do. Verse 9 Behold, Jesus met them on this road, and Jesus said, Greetings, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. What do we mean by transforming presence as a church? What do we mean by extending the transforming presence of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ? It's right here. It's right here. When the angel appeared... Mary and Mary were afraid. When the angel appeared, the soldiers trembled and were paralyzed by that fear. But Mary and Mary show us something else. Just as the angel said, do not be afraid, now their Savior says, do not fear. They were afraid. And it wasn't just a scary kind of horror movie fear. Fear. It was the reality that our friend, our savior, our God is alive. And what they do next is remarkable. One fear leads to this paralytic trembling that drops the soldiers to the ground like dead men. This fear, because of how safe they are, how intimate they are with their Lord, draws them to him. He has come to meet them and now they're coming to him. And what do they do? These women grab hold of his feet. The feet that had been pierced. The Bible from beginning to end is about head to heel combat. Head to heel combat. Genesis 3 The Lord speaks about the serpent and the son. He will strike your heel. You will crush his head. The women are holding those very feet that a nail had gone through, that he had used to raise himself up and down. They saw it. They felt it. Do you remember Thomas's response? He missed it. So he said, unless I see the hands, unless I put my hand in his side, I will never believe. These women are fearful and irreverent awe and wonder and they come to him and cling to his feet. Eugene Peterson, in a book titled living the resurrection, describes this transforming presence in a way that I think is really helpful for us. It's two markers of worship that must be present that involve transcendence and intimacy. And I want you to get this. God is holy other than. He is omnipotent, which means all-powerful. He's all-knowing, omniscient, which means there's nothing he can ever learn about anything that's happening. He's sovereign. He's omnipresent, meaning everywhere present. This is the God we worship. He is transcendent, but at the same time, for those who are in Christ, he's intimate. It's the greatest union we can know. He fills his people with his spirit speaking of these women this is what Peterson writes they leave the site of the tomb as ordered by the angel deep in wonder and full of joy they are off on the run to share the news with the disciples but then they're stopped in their tracks by a greeting it's jesus They hear a welcome in the greeting, and they fall to their knees before the resurrected Christ. Their first response to the risen Christ was to kneel in awe, reverence, and fear. There was also an element of intimacy in that reverence, for they dared to touch and hold to his feet. Here they worshiped him. That's what the text says. The two elements together became worship. The two elements are the transforming presence. Falling to our knees before Jesus, an act of reverence, awe, fear, is not in itself resurrection worship. Touching and holding the feet of Jesus, an act of intimacy, is not in itself resurrection worship. The acts of reverence and intimacy need each other. The reverence needs the infusion of intimacy lest it become a cool, detached aesthetic. The intimacy needs to be suffused in reverence lest it become gushy emotion. These women knew what they were doing. They were dealing with God in the living presence of Jesus. And so they worshiped him. Fear is unsettling. We, seeing Christ face to face, seeing his transcendence, his glory, it will be unsettling. But because we're in him, we will feel so secure, so safe, so intimate. Fear of God Fear of the Lord, that phrase runs throughout Scripture. But each time there's an encounter with the living God who will create that kind of fear, reverence and awe, or the other kind, that paralytic terror, the Lord says to his people, do not fear. Fear the Lord transforms into fear not because of the intimacy because of the pursuit, because of that connection. Today in the church, we miss on both sides. We miss the transcendence, and worship just becomes one more casual event that we check into and check out of as if we're seeking to be entertained. Or we approach it like a critic, or we approach it as a consumer. I hope they sing this song. I hope he preaches this long. I hope dot, dot, dot. We come to this place to worship a God who is other. We come to praise a God who we're told that his greatness is unsearchable. His power is beyond measure. His love is so wide deep, long, and high that the language used in the Greek means it's endless. That's who we come to worship. That transcendent, other than, massive God. And at the same time, instead of living in utter fear, scared to death, can't look up, can't be near him, those who are in Christ feel the safety of his arms wrapped around us, of his presence living in us because it really is. Mike Iaconelli, and I've shared this before, wrote this in a challenge and an encouragement to the church. He says, the tragedy of modern faith is that we are no longer capable of being terrified. We aren't afraid of God. We aren't afraid of Jesus. We aren't afraid of the Holy Spirit. As a result, we've ended up with a need-centered gospel that attracts thousands but transforms no one. Friends, so much of what's being offered as Christianity is not much more than a self-help book. Try this one, try that one, buy this one, go to that conference, do this. Those things have a place, but there's so much more. So much more, and it's quite simple. It is bowing and clinging to the feet of Christ. Iaconelli writes on, what happened to the bone-chilling, earth-shattering, gut-wrenching, knee-knocking, heart-stopping, life-changing fear, reverence, awe, that left us speechless, paralyzed, and helpless? What happened to those moments when you and I would open our Bibles and our hands started shaking because we were afraid of the truth we might find there? I remember my first trip to China when one of those who had come to Christ was reading from her Bible, the Gospel of John. And as she shared it, she said to me, sitting next to her at dinner, don't you just weep when you read the Gospel of John. And I just looked down and thought, it's been a long, long time since I've wept at any part of the Gospel. We need to see new believers and the joy and the belief that they have, as well as they need to see old believers who continue to hold the scripture sacred and holy, but also intimate. He says, we're not afraid of the right things. We are afraid of unemployment. We are afraid of our cities. We are afraid of the collapse of our government. We are afraid of not being fulfilled. but We are not afraid of God. And he means that fear, that reverence, that awe, that he's beyond what we can even imagine. And then he writes this, I would like to suggest that the church become a place of terror again. Now listen to what he means. He is not talking about us coming into a place where we're feeling shame and the inability to worship. He's talking about coming into a place where we feel so safe and secure, but we remember who it is we're worshiping. And like the women, we see the resurrected Christ and we fall down. We cling to him and hear him say, do not fear. I would like to suggest that the church become a place of terror again, a place where God continually has to tell us, fear not, you're safe. A place where our relationship with God is not a simple belief or doctrine or theology. It is God's burning presence, transforming presence, God's burning presence in our lives. I'm suggesting that the tame God of relevance be replaced by the God whose very presence shatters our egos into dust burns our sin into ashes, and strips us naked to reveal the real person within. The church needs to become a gloriously dangerous place where nothing is safe in God's presence except us, his people, safe, secure, but nothing else including our plans, our agendas, our priorities, our politics, our money, our security, our comfort, our possessions, our needs. Our world is tired of people whose God is tame. It is longing to see people whose God is big and holy and frightening and, listen carefully, gentle, tender. And ours, our God, our God. We are his beloved. A God whose love frightens us into his strong and powerful arms, where he longs to whisper those terrifying words, those terrifying words. I love you, he loves you, he loves his people. He loves his people so much that he demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The women and the men who followed Jesus we were not expecting that the tomb wouldn't be closed. They were not expecting that a dead body wouldn't be present. So what did God do? What well, he always does, he moves. He moves towards his people. And as he moves towards his people, their expectations are blown apart. New expectations are created and the expectations that we as his people should have, always centered on what his word has declared, should have us in a place where we live in fear, awe, and wonder that this transcendent holy God would want us for his own. And we, his people, along with that fear, that holy reverence and all, should live in the reality of an intimacy that is greater than any other intimacy we know, greater than the union between husband and wife, greater than the presence of a child in the womb, the living God living in us. So what are you expecting? Today, as you came to this place, Were you expecting to see Jesus? If you were a Christian, you're probably expecting to see him one day. But let me tell you the truth. Because the Spirit lives in us, we will see Christ all the time. You should set your eyes on the day that you will see him face to face. But that's not all. He has given us himself and lives in us. And his word and the means of grace like prayer and the sacraments help us to know his presence. We are a sheep, we know his voice. But whether you're a believer or not, you should expect to see Jesus because we are told that all will. Those who are in Christ, because of who he is, will fall on our knees to worship him but we will do that with intimate feelings of security. We're his, we're safe. Those who are not in Christ will experience what the guards did. They felt it for a moment, that paralytic fear, but all who are outside of Christ will experience that for all eternity. Today, if you've come to this place of worship, and you don't know the Lord, I'm, gr- I'm so grateful that you're here. Like those women who were carrying things to the tomb, like those women who are having conversations about that tomb, all of us have conversations and all of us are carrying things. Some of you are carrying burdens that you were never meant to carry and are struggling to surrender them to the Lord. Like those spices, Those burdens need to be laid down, they're useless. Some of you come into this place carrying self-righteousness. I'm better than others because I live this way. It's useless. Some of you have come carrying cynicism. You think it's somewhat more intelligent or at least more authentic to say I have lots of questions. And some of you carry doubts, and I get that. But I wonder if you're really wanting to deal with your doubts, or if you just want to be stuck in doubt. And I wonder if your doubts about Christianity are centered on who Christ says he is and reveals himself to be, or if it's centered on people who claim to know Christ. Don't let those who claim to know Christ keep you from seeking the real Christ. Doubt all you want. But seek for the sake of who he says he is. Seek to know what he says and make your decision. Today might be the day where you've come and you've heard enough and you're ready to say, I want to trust Christ for my salvation. All you need to do is confess your sin. I'm a sinner, you're the Savior. You're the only one who can give me life. I rest in you alone for salvation. As I close this in prayer, simply pray that prayer and then come tell Paul or me or someone else around the room that you believe knows that, that we might help you begin that walk. What are you expecting? We as his people should expect to see Jesus, not just in heaven but through his word and spirit now, every day with new morning mercies. But we should expect it to be a joyful reality of fear, reverence, and awe, and the safety of holding on to those feet, the king's feet, the victorious feet of our Savior. Father in heaven, thank you for today. Thank you that your word indeed springs eternal. Thank you for these women who were overwhelmed by what they were not expecting. And I pray that the same thing has happened today, not just for a few in this body, but for all of us, that we would have seen more than we expected that we would know more about how great and mighty and awesome you are, but also how close and intimate and personal. And Father, may those two things mark our life and give us a joy that is unexplainable apart from you. Lord, if there are any today ready to pray for salvation, Hear their prayer now as they confess their sins, their need of a Savior, and rest in you alone for salvation. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.